We continue this morning um, our look at the I am statements of Jesus. Seven different times in John's gospel when Jesus says of himself, I am. And we're operating on the assumption that what Jesus has to say about himself is more important than what we have to say about him. Or to say it differently, that what we have to say about Jesus ought to grow out of what Jesus has to say about Jesus. This is his assessment of his nature, his purpose, his ministry. This morning we come to the third of those statements. It's found in the 10th chapter of John's Gospel, so I would invite you to join me as we read there beginning in the very first verse, John 10 verse 1. Jesus says this, speaking to a group of religious leaders with whom he's been having a discussion, we might even say an argument. This is what he has to say. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Well, I learned some information uh, this week that is both interesting and frankly a little bit disturbing. And it is this. All of us, almost without exception, are on the verge of getting cancer. Now, aren't you glad you came to church this morning to hear that? In fact, right this very moment, there are cancer-like cells coursing through my body and yours. Here's why. Every moment of every day, the cells that make up our bodies are busy dividing. Now, that's a good thing because it keeps us alive. The problem is that because of the complexity of our genetic code, it is a given almost that some portion of those cells are going to mutate when they divide. That is, they will experience some sort of genetic defect. And if that defect is allowed to repeat itself over and over as that cell division continues, then before long you've got this small little cluster of renegade cells that are all clumping together, and that's where cancer gets its start. And that's happening right now in you and in me. 
The good news is that we have this very robust defense mechanism called an immune system. And it's busy at work both day and night, scurrying about, gobbling up these little mutant cells and destroying them, usually before we ever even know about it. Now, the medical professionals among us will have to excuse me for butchering, I'm sure, what is a description of a very complex process, but, but it illustrates a fact that we have to come to terms with. We are all at risk all the time. Despite our efforts at immunity and self-defense, the truth is life is an exercise in managing risk and threats and dangers. And it's not just cancer and other diseases that threaten us. Every time we get into a car, there are just a few inches of yellow paint separating us from the oncoming traffic. Every time we walk down a flight of stairs, we are just one slip of the foot away from a broken bone or worse. Now, statistically speaking, the risk we face are pretty low. Most days we will make it home safe. But that doesn't change the fact that we all live every moment of every day with a certain degree of exposure. Life just involves being at risk. Now, I have an idea. I can't prove this, but I have an idea that the people in the ancient world, the people that lived during the time about which we just read a moment ago, they probably had a much greater and more immediate awareness of that fact than we do. You see, they understood what it means to be exposed. First century folk weren't helpless and they weren't inept, but they did have a greater awareness of being at the mercy of, of forces that were bigger than they. They didn't have antibiotics or the Pentagon or the Social Security Administration or any of the other things we look to for safety and security in our world today. And so diseases, droughts, floods, economic collapse, invading armies, thieves in the night, even prowling animals, They lived with a much greater awareness of the immediate threat that such things posed for them. That's why I think the image Jesus uses in John chapter 10 would have spoken to them perhaps a little more immediately than it does to us. Now to understand why I say that, let's back up and look at the context and maybe then we'll begin to understand why this word is still so relevant even for you and for me. We said last week that Jesus has been engaged in an ongoing conflict with a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. Now, there were lots of things that made the relationship between them and him tense, but but Jesus' largest beef, his largest criticism of the Pharisees was that even though they were technically supposed to be Israel's leaders, It was very obvious to him that they did not have the people's best interest at heart. As leaders, they were seeking primarily to serve themselves. Because of their legalistic mindset and their judgmental spirits, they had a way of weighing people down rather than lifting people up. 
they were arrogant, and they were self-serving. And we all know from experience that being around people like that has a way of sucking the life right out of us, especially when such folk as that have authority over us because you can't escape their influence. And that's why Jesus was so angry with them. Even though the Pharisees were charged with leading the people, it turns out they were leading in a way that didn't really lead because a true leader leads in a way that lifts up those he or she leads. Well, Jesus takes this criticism of them and he builds it out by drawing on the imagery of the sheep and a shepherd and of the relationship that exists between them. Now, we'll spend the next couple of weeks exploring this imagery. We're going to stay in John 10, not just today, but next Sunday as well. And next Sunday, we'll look at the the latter portion of this passage where Jesus uses a different image of himself, saying that he is the good shepherd. But today, we're going to look at the front half of the passage, which we just read, in which Jesus uses a somewhat less familiar, or at least in our context, less exciting image. In verse 7 and again in verse 9, Jesus refers to himself as the gate, saying, I am the gate for the sheep. Now, I know that you know what a gate is, so I'm certainly not trying to insult your intelligence this morning, but if we look at it in the original context, that word, that image, takes on an elevated significance. You see, back in those days, and to a certain extent, even still today in that part of the world, sheep would spend their days out in the open, grazing as the shepherd would lead them from one location to another in constant search of food and water. So they would be on the move and out and exposed. But when night came, those sheep would be gathered into the nearest available sheep fold which were scattered randomly out through the open countryside. Now, fold, simply put, was a sort of a primitive fence-like structure that was made of rocks stacked up several feet high. And sometimes a layer of branches or tree limbs would be spread across the top just to add an extra layer of deterrence. And that, that homemade fence, if you will, would be designed so as to enclose an entire area with one exception. There would be a small gap, a a narrow opening through which the sheep would enter and exit. And at night, they would sleep within that fold in an environment of relative safety and security. Relative being the key word. See, that That fold kept the sheep from wandering off during the night and getting lost, and it also, at the very least, would slow down a predator who might want to attack, slow them down long enough at least for the shepherd to respond and come to the sheep's defense. The only problem was that narrow opening through which the sheep would enter and exit. Because if the sheep could get in and out of the fold there, so could the things that want to eat the sheep. And so the shepherd would take care of that problem by lying down across the opening at night. When the sun went down and they would bed down for the night, he would position himself in such a way that his body would block that opening so that anything that wanted in or out of the fold would literally have to crawl over him. And so it was in that way that the shepherd became the gate 
With his body, he closed off that fold so that now the sheep could sleep in relative peace and security. That's the image that Jesus is drawing on when he says, I am the gate for the sheep. I am here, he is saying, to provide that measure of protection and safety and security that the Pharisees are unwilling to give while they are off seeking after their own interest, building themselves up. I am here to care for the sheep. I am here to make sure that those who come to me are safe and protected from the things that would threaten them to a people in a time and place who understood from everyday experience what it means to be exposed, what it means to live with threats and dangers all around them. To those people, Jesus said, I am the gate. I am the one who protects you. Now, as soon as we say that, if your mind is like mine, then it immediately goes back to all those risks we talked about a moment ago. As we said, in spite of all our efforts to be safe and secure in ourselves, sometimes the threats that surround us do crash in on us and cause us harm, as is evidenced by the fact that even when our immune systems are functioning, sometimes those renegade cells slip through and we get cancer. How can we sit here this morning with a straight face and talk about how Jesus protects us when all these bad things keep happening? Where was Jesus when the disease struck or when the accident happened? Where was his supposed protection when my loved one betrayed me or when the company fired me? What kind of gate continues to allow suffering into my household? Well, those are understandable questions. But it seems pretty obvious, even from a cursory reading of Scripture itself, that Jesus never promised his followers immunity from struggles and hardships. Even though he declares unequivocally that he is the gate, he never promises that we won't have hard times. In fact, he predicts exactly the opposite. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus said directly to his disciples, on the night he himself was being arrested and put on trial, he says to them, in this world you will have trouble. No bones about it. So when Jesus talks about providing safety and security, either he's delusional or he's speaking about something different. He's talking about something that happens to us in the midst of the troubles that come our way. But this morning, rather than trying to explain what that other something is, perhaps we would do better to illustrate it. And so with the moments we have left, I want us to take some stories from Scripture and look at some actual examples of the kinds of protection that Jesus offers us. What does he truly mean when he says, I am the gate? What is it? That he's protecting us from. 
Let me throw out some examples. Let's consider as a point of beginning the story of Mary of Bethany that we read about in John chapter 12. We're going to jump around a little bit here. One evening, Mary and her sister Martha hosted Jesus and his disciples in their home for a dinner. And while the evening meal was being served, the text says that Mary took a jar of expensive perfume, something called nard, and she popped the cork on it and she used that expensive oil to anoint Jesus' feet and then she wiped them with her hair. It was a bizarre act. But it was an act that was both prophetic and lavish. It was prophetic because it foretold of what was coming. You see, in that day and in that time, the only people who got their feet anointed with oil were dead people. It was a part of the standard ritual of preparing a body for burial. And so in anointing Jesus' feet with that oil, Mary was announcing publicly what Jesus was getting ready to do, foretelling of the sacrifice that he was about to make. But it was a lavish act also because it was so overwhelmingly extravagant. Mary took no thought of preserving or holding back. She just poured that expensive oil out, allowing it to run not only over Jesus' feet, but down through the cracks in the floorboards beneath them. The significance of that act was lost on the people around her. Nobody else in the room got it. In fact, some even openly chastised her for it. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot in particular, openly ridiculed her. He said she should have been more reasonable, more thoughtful, and more careful. He said if she really wanted to do something useful, she should have taken that oil and sold it and used the money for the poor. But Jesus stepped in at that moment and he silenced the critics. In spite of everybody else's misunderstanding, he declared that her gift to him was priceless and invaluable because he understood that that act was born out of love and pure devotion to him and to the kingdom he had come to proclaim. By stepping in on her behalf, Jesus protected her from the ridicule and the rejection of people who wanted to dismiss her because they did not understand her gift. They did not recognize that what she had to offer her Lord was of immeasurable value to Him. And yet, despite their misunderstanding, Jesus readily receives the heartfelt gift of anybody who offers to him what they have. Even if the world around them views it as useless and wasteful. We may not have the resources or the abilities or perhaps the qualities and characteristics that the world around us values, the things that the world says matters. 
But if we take whatever it is that we have and we give it to Jesus out of a desire to love him and serve his kingdom, he will receive and use that gift with joy. And he will receive the giver with open embrace. And so no matter who we are, by receiving whatever it is we have to give, Jesus protects us from rejection. We have the promise that in him we will never be turned away. Jesus protects us from rejection. Let's consider the case of another woman, this one whose name is never given to us. We read about her in the ninth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. We're told that this woman suffered from a 12-year flow of blood. The scriptures say that this woman had spent all of her resources seeking help and treatment, but none of it had worked. And so now she's broken financially, she's weakened physically, and perhaps lost on us. She is cut off spiritually. You see, according to the Old Testament purity laws by which she and her people lived, her condition made her ritually unclean. That meant for 12 years this woman had not been able to participate in the social or spiritual life of her community. She couldn't worship with others. She couldn't gather with others. She couldn't even eat with others. She had been forced to live for over a decade alone and in isolation. So when Jesus touched her with, and, and brought healing to her, he, he not only restored her physical health, he restored her place in the community. He took this one who had been cut off and isolated and he drew her back into fellowship with others. And it is in that same way that Jesus continues to protect us today from isolation. We may not live with the same Old Testament laws that governed purity that existed in those days, but you know from your own experience there are still plenty of forces at work in this world that want to push us away from each other and cause us to cut ourselves off from each other. It is one of the great ironies of modern life that in a day and time when technology enables to connect with more people in more places more quickly than ever before, people are increasingly feeling a sense of isolation and loneliness. And the effect of Jesus' grace is to call us back into fellowship with Him and with one another through the promise of His presence and most particularly through the church He created Jesus provides for us community and shared life so that we do not have to carry our burdens alone. He protects us from isolation. Let's consider another story. This one about two disciples whom Jesus meets on the road in Luke 24. This is after the resurrection has happened and we read that these two men are on their way back to their home village, a place called Emmaus. As we read the story and we piece together 
what the timeline had been. We discovered that these folks had been in Jerusalem over the last couple of days and they had witnessed all of the traumatic events that had happened, including the crucifixion of Jesus that occurred on that Friday. And as we read, we discover that they are dejected and brokenhearted because of what has happened. It seems that Jesus is somebody in whom they had come to hope and trust, but when they saw him die on Friday, their hopes died with him. And now they are going home, feeling a sense of despair and grief and sorrow, thinking that all is lost. But as the story continues, we read about somebody who wanders up next to them and begins to walk with them. It is none other than Jesus himself, but they don't know that yet. The scriptures say their eyes were, were, were blinded to the fact that it was him. They didn't recognize him. And so Jesus took that moment to begin teaching them. As they walked, he took them in their minds back to the scriptures that had defined their world, and he began to show them step by step how it had actually been predicted all along that the Messiah would have to suffer. And he goes on to explain that it was through the death and suffering of the one they saw die on Friday that the world had been saved. That the crucifixion wasn't actually an accident or a tragic ending to something that otherwise might have turned out okay. But it was actually the very fulfillment of the dreams and the hopes that they had carried for so long. And then in a moment of divine insight, we read that as they broke bread together, their eyes were opened and they recognized that it was none other than the risen Christ among them. And it was then that they began to understand that what the world describes as defeat and humiliation is actually the place where God does his most transformative work. The cross was not an end to what God accomplished it was the fulfillment of what God accomplished. In the same way, we face things today that bring us grief and despair and humiliation. The failure of some dream we've been carrying. The collapse of some relationship that we valued. The death of a loved one. There are a thousand and one experiences in daily life that would cause us to think that all is lost and that there's nothing left to do except to despair. But it is in those times and places the risen Christ comes to show us how he takes those failures and those losses and those disappointments and he turns them around to bring about a new dream and to offer a new life that we could not have imagined before. Jesus protects us from despair. Let's think about the Samaritan woman whom Jesus encounters at the well in John chapter 4. In those days, it was typical for folks to go to the village well early in the day to get the water that they and their household would need. That's still a practice throughout much of the developing world. But for reasons that we will come to understand later, Jesus meets this woman at high noon. And as we read on, we can begin to gather a sense of why that must be. You see, this woman has lived a life that, well, let's just say it hasn't been stellar. A life full of failed relationships, 
She's been married five times, and we go on to discover that the man she's currently living with is not even her husband. It would have been enough to call into question her moral character and to earn her the scorn of her neighbors. And so it is very likely that she chose intentionally to come to the well at a time of day when no one else was likely to be around so she could avoid their judgmental stares. To her surprise, who should be there but this man whom she's never met before And as they talk, he makes it clear that he knows everything about her. He sees right through her and knows her failings. He's aware of her failed relationships. And he names them for what they were, but he did not condemn her. Instead, he offered to give her what he called living water. Inviting her into a new life that she could not have imagined before. I would imagine that in the same way there are a lot of us, maybe to a certain extent, all of us who come to this place today carrying the weight of sins both past and present. We gather here today knowing that we are not clean. There's something about our life that's a mess that despite our efforts to give off a different image, we do not have it all together and we are working hard to hide the shame and the guilt that it brings and yet here we meet Jesus who instead of casting us aside receives us and offers us his grace gives us the living water that we need to begin again and in so doing Jesus protects us From condemnation. One final example this morning. Let's consider the two thieves who are crucified along with Jesus as we read about it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. The way Luke tells the story, one of the criminals who was hanging beside Jesus was filled with bitterness and scorn, and he was determined to go out of this world the same manner by which he had lived in this world, and so he used his final breaths to hurl insults and accusations at others and at Jesus. But this other criminal had a very different reaction He saw something different in Jesus. He saw love and truth nailed to that cross beside him. And it was enough to convict him of the darkness in his own life. And so with his final breath, he asked Jesus for mercy. More specifically, he asked Jesus to remember him when Jesus entered into his kingdom. And Jesus gave him his heart's desire. Today, Jesus said to this dying man, Today you will be with me in paradise. And with that, he received into his life this one who had lived a life of guile and corruption, and he granted him pardon and a place in Jesus' eternal kingdom. 
And that same offer is being given to us today. In fact, it is the only offer that gives us any hope at all in this life because it is the offer of His righteousness. What do we mean by that? Simply this, no matter how corrupt or misguided or messed up we are, from the cross, Jesus takes His righteousness and His obedience and His goodness and His merit and He transfers it to us and by His merits we are declared righteous before God. We are restored to a fellowship with the Father whom we have rebelled against. And so it is that apart from any effort of our own, apart from any accomplishment that we have achieved, apart from any so-called goodness that we think we have gone after, we are granted a place along with that thief and every other repentant sinner in God's eternal kingdom. And so it is because of Jesus that we are protected from eternal judgment. So maybe now we can begin to have a fuller picture of what Jesus means when he says, I am the gate. Doesn't mean that he will protect us from bad things ever happening to us. I wish I could tell you otherwise, but I would be lying to you. He doesn't guarantee us a life of freedom from pain and difficulty. But he does promise us that even in the midst of hardship and sorrow and suffering, even then, he will protect us from all of those things that threaten to crush the life of the Spirit within us. Rejection, isolation, despair, condemnation, eternal judgment. These are the great risk that every human being faces. These are the things that not only kill the body but kill the soul. Jesus says those are the things he shields us from. I think it's the similar idea that the Apostle Paul had in mind a little bit later when he writes in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He writes, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Because with his own body, Jesus puts himself between us and everything that would seek to destroy us, including Satan himself. And that is why, as God's people, we gather today to say, thank God there is a place for us in the sheepfold of Jesus. Because he is the gate for the sheep. Let's pray together. Father, help us to avail ourselves of the protection that only you can give. We struggle so hard to make it on our own, to, to prove to ourselves and the world around us that we can do it by our own strength and our own might. And yet call us into your fold to surrender to your role as our shepherd and as the gate who protects us. Thank you for the privilege being counted among your flock. And we make this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
So the question is, where do we stand in relation to this one who is the shepherd and the gate? If we are outside the fold of Jesus, he is inviting us in to come and become a part of his flock by declaring him as our Lord and Savior, by surrendering to him, by allowing him to become our guide, our leader. If you've never taken that step, then, then I would just urge you, as we conclude worship here in a moment, to do so to heed his call and to enter into the fold of his grace. If that's where you are, would you come forward while we're singing? I'd love to share a moment with you and pray over that. But mm, there are plenty of us who have entered the fold but yet have wandered off trying to do it on our own. And Jesus this morning is calling us back to re-enter the protection that he offers. If that's where we are, I pray we will heed the call and come back home. Whatever it is, let's heed the shepherd's voice. Would you stand as we sing together?